the sick, and so forth. And then we had kind of this uh, thing that sort of interrupts the flow of the narrative with Herod thinking as he's finding out about Jesus that John the Baptist has risen from the dead, and that's what's going on. And he's haunted by that thought because he has a guilty conscience over uh, having beheaded John. And then we go back to finalize the narrative with the sending out of the twelve. This is kind of the story within a story sort of a thing here. Because in verse 30, the apostles come back from those uh, travels and we read about the the follow-up to that. So... Uh, 32-34. The apostles gathered together with Jesus, and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a secluded place, and rest a while. For there were many people coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. They went away in the boat to a secluded place by themselves. The people saw them going, and many recognized them, and ran there together on foot from all the cities, and got there ahead of them. When Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd, and he felt compassion for them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. So, they come back to Jesus, doing what? Reporting? Yeah. You would expect kind of a debriefing session for them to tell about the things that happened to them, on the trip, how it had gone, what it, what they'd done. This is probably, to some extent, a training mission for them. So Jesus would want to know about what kind of problems they encountered, how it went, how they felt about it. So they tell uh, Jesus all that they'd done and taught. And what does Jesus suggest that they all do? No rest. Yeah. They would probably need a break. They've been on this... Uh, Uh, this mission to spread the message. Jesus would need a break too. Why? He just heard about John. Yes, perhaps. And, because? How is it for him? Really busy. Yeah. And to the point he can't even eat. I mean, he's so thronged by people. We've seen that already in other occasions. But people are just constantly coming to him. They want things from him. You know, they want healing. They want demons cast out. They want they want to ask him questions. Uh, in some cases, they want to criticize him. But he's constantly, constantly under the pressure of so many activities, so many people needing his help. How would that make you feel? Have you ever been like that where you just felt, you just had, just, so many demands on you from everywhere. How does it make you feel? Very tired. Very tired. And? Hungry. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And? Overwhelmed. Overwhelmed. Yeah. How do you feel when you feel overwhelmed? Stressed. Stressed? Could be depressed. Could be worried. I would feel more tense, maybe kind of irritated and impatient, and and maybe just almost confused. And 
if you've gotten like that before, or you feel overwhelmed and exhausted, what do you want? Rest. Yeah. Where would you like to get the rest? Alone. Yeah. <laughs> you like to just shut everybody out and just get away. And so that's what Jesus suggests. Only when Jesus, you know, decides to try to get away for, you know, some time for rest and so forth, he picks his 12 best friends and gets in a boat with them. <laughs> you know, I don't think that would be my idea of the, you know, the ideal thing to do. But you see Jesus, even in those times, is constantly serving and reaching out and helping. And so they get in the boat, they go to the other side, and what happens once they get there? A lot of people show up. There's already all these people who've realized where he was headed, run around on the shore and gotten there. He comes on shore hoping for some peace for some time semi-alone. <laughs> and he's met by this thronging multitude again, wanting, wanting his help. Now, how would you have reacted at that point? Gotta be kidding. Yes. <laughs> Big sigh. <laughs> Will you get out of my face? Can I? Can anybody have any peace in this world? You know, I mean, I think it would have just been, you know, you'd have just exploded. You know, what do I have to do? And and because the stress level really, you know, goes up. And and you know, just wow, it's just hard to deal with constant, constant pressure, constant demands from so many people. And for Jesus, this has been a long time. We've seen this over several chapters. And, uh, but how does Jesus feel? Compassionate. Isn't that amazing? So, what was he thinking about? Not himself. Not himself. He was thinking about them. He was focused on their needs, not his needs. That's tough to do when we feel pressure. When we feel tense and whatever, we're almost always thinking about ourselves, feeling a little sorry for ourselves, feeling like we're thinking about what we need. And, you know, Jesus, he sees them, and all he can think about is their needs their situation. What were they like? He saw they were kind of, they were lost. They were without direction. They were without guidance. They needed help. So Jesus thinks about them and he starts teaching them. And he began to teach them many things. So Jesus, even in this moment of exhaustion and pressure, gives. He's amazing. Uh, these are just incredible things about Jesus. These may not be the mo- the things that would stand out at first. I mean, I think maybe his miracles and things like that stand out more at first. But I think once you read more into the text, wow, this is a really incredible. The the attitude that he has, the the self giving, even when you would have thought there was nothing more left to give. Tell me some thoughts. I 
how did the people know what secluded place they were going to? Well, I don't know, other than the lake's not too big, and I guess they could see where the boat was aimed, I don't know. <laughs> I was just thinking, you know, that it's not like they have Diana's spa and retreat that everybody goes to. <laughs> I wouldn't think, at least. Uh, well, probably not. Yeah, I, that's all I know. I don't, I don't have a good answer to that. Yeah, I need My first thought was, well, yeah, Jesus is compassionate because he's Jesus. Then I remember the verse that says that he was tempted in every way just as we are, and I wonder if this kind of situation really did tempt him. Because when we were talking about the stress level and all, I was thinking, well, Jesus wouldn't have had that. But he was tempted in every way that we are. Yeah, I think, I mean, you know, when we look at different aspects of Jesus in the Gospels, you see him feeling specific things. I mean, he was weary in John 4 where he sat there by the well. He was hungry after the 40 days and nights of not eating in Matthew 4. And and so forth and so on. I mean, you know, he was dreading the cross and, and even sweating drops of blood and agony and so forth. I, it looks to me like Jesus has the same you know, makeup we do in in those things, you know, in his earthly life. And obviously the fact that he was Jesus made him deal with it differently, but I think not because the pressure was different, but because he chose to deal with it differently. So I agree with you. And it's really, it's a great example. Um, I think it's a great example to get our minds off of ourselves. And that is my struggle when I tend to feel overwhelmed and either down or irritated or whatever, as I start feeling sorry for myself in a, in a way, start thinking about my needs and my, you know, wow, this is really hard for me. And I quit thinking about other people and what they need. And what I don't, you know, when we're thinking about ourselves and feeling sorry for ourselves, it leads to all sorts of bad attitudes. We become prideful, we become selfish, and, you know, ungrateful, and, and just a whole lot of things. And, and the ability to care about others when we are really overwhelmed, that's, that's a really powerful lesson. I mean... I don't know anybody who's been able to do this like Jesus, but that is our example. Other thoughts? Well, we have a problem. And so we're going to listen in on the emergency business meeting as we seek to solve the problem. 35 to 44. It was already quite late. His disciples came to him and said, This place is desolate. It's already quite late. Send them away so that they may go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, Give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and spend two hundred denarii on bread and give them something to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go look. When they found out, they said, Five and two fish. He commanded them all to sit down by groups on the green grass. They sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. He took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food and broke the loaves, 
And he kept giving them to the disciples to set before them, and he divided up the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. They picked up twelve full baskets of the broken pieces and also the fish. There were five thousand men who ate the loaves. So, so what's the problem? They're hungry. Yeah! we got to get these guys sent off so they can go somewhere and eat. Um, and what does Jesus tell his disciples? Yeah, you give them something to eat. Now, I don't know, how do you react to Jesus when he tells you to do something like that? You give them something to eat. Uh, that would probably be mine. There's one big problem with that. And the disciples focus in on that. And what is that? Uh, five loaves and two fish. Money. Yeah. Money. How would we do that? The disciples are thinking about what they lack. They don't have 200 denarii to be able to, to you know invest in food, that would be, I mean, it, nah, that's probably just a ballpark figure on their part, but a denarius was the amount you'd make for one day's work. So 200 denarii would be like 200 days work. I mean, it depends on what kind of job you've got, but we're talking about thousands and thousands of dollars worth of food from their perspective. Come on in. <laughs> We're in Mark chapter 6. We're looking at 35 to 44. And particularly 37. So the disciples are thinking, there's no way. We can't do that. How would we, what would we do? I mean, and, and so they just, Jesus gives a command, and they're like, we can't. We don't have the money. But Jesus forces them to look at it a different way. What does Jesus ask them? What do you have? Yes. Instead of what do you not have, what do you possess? You go look and tell me what you've got. Well, what did they have? Five loaves and two fishes. Now, how do you envision the five loaves and the two fishes? Not much. Not much. Two fish about this big... And loaves about this big. I'll buy you. I'll buy the loaf part. Yeah, I think when you think of loaves, don't think about sliced bread loaves, which is kind of a modern invention with bread. Think about kind of a, a bread roll, like a I don't know something you get a Cuban sandwich on or something that way. You know, uh, that that's the way most of the world knows bread, uh, and, and probably what we're dealing with. The fish appears to have been some sort of like a fish relish, a fish salad sort of a thing. Like you do chicken salad or something like that. So it would be a... <laughs> so well, why would that be hilarious? You have fish salad. <laughs> well, exactly. Precisely. I think that's what you've got. You've got the material to make yourself five fish sandwiches. I think that's, that's exactly what they're dealing with. Which makes it a little more understandable. You know, if you're thinking about you've got a couple of, you know, whole uncooked fish... Or something like that. What would you do with that? You know, but I think this is actually, you know, practically ready to eat. Maybe the fish isn't spread on the bread yet, but, you know, it's, uh, it, it can work in that way. So, that's what they've got. Well, that's nice. You know, a couple of them might be able to eat. 
you know, you can see why the disciples felt like, well, you know, what are we going to do? But what did Jesus tell them to do then? First to sit down, in, in the, they grouped him in groups of hundreds and fifties. And then Jesus prayed and thanked God for the food and started distributing them to who? To the disciples, for the disciples to take and give to the the crowd now organized in groups. And the amazing thing is, he kept passing out the food, and kept passing out the food, and kept passing out the food. Until everybody had eaten, gotten full, and they picked up how many baskets full of leftovers? One for each of the apostles. There's more leftovers than there were to begin with. A whole lot more. Isn't that amazing? And, and, and I think there is, perhaps I should say there are, several lessons for us in this. Because there may be a time when the Lord asks us to do something. Gives us a command. And we think, oh I can't. How would I do that? Well, Jesus wouldn't give us a command if he wasn't going to provide what we needed to fulfill the command. Our job is to start with what we have and use it and trust him to grow it or do whatever is necessary to get the job done. There are many times when the Lord has expected people to do things they didn't have the wherewithal to do. How about David and Goliath. And how about Daniel on the lion's den? And so forth and so on. We do what we can trusting the Lord and he'll take care of the rest. I think that's an excellent you know, lesson for us in this. Maybe a side lesson. Um, and, and, and it's interesting that Jesus not only used the disciples to get the food they had to begin with, but also for the distribution of it. You know, this is not something where Jesus does it all. He is employing the disciples every step of the way. Obviously, he's the one who has the, the power to make the food or to multiply the food. But the disciples have a, a strong degree of involvement in this as well. So I think that's one angle on this story that's worth thinking about. Do you have some comments and thoughts about that? Yeah. Well, I had some question. Like, in my version, in verse 37, it puts an exclamation mark after you give them something to eat. And in 38, it puts an exclamation, go look. Like, I've always been curious about that, because it almost sounds like he's angry, or he's like, uh, I don't know, like really imperative about it. Well, that's the reason they're using that exclamation point, is because they're imperative sentences. But an imperative is just a command. I mean, he just says, you give him something to eat, he just says, go look. You know, imperatives don't necessarily mean they're harsh. They're just orders. And, but because it's an imperative, they'll use the, the exclamation part, point. Obviously, there was no punctuation in the original. That's just kind of an English thing to, you know, put... I think, isn't it pretty standard in English to put an exclamation point after uh, an imperative sentence? I think that's a... Not, but it is fairly common, is it not, or not? It's not as common as it used to be, because now it's used for other types of just emphasis and 
and is overused. So it may be a reflection too of you know our translations being a few years older or whatever. That's what's done. But I see it done sometimes. So I think that's all that means. I think that's why the translators did that. Yes. I just appreciate the lesson about God's abundance. He doesn't just give you what he need, what you need. He gives you so much more, and you know, so much that there's a lot of leftovers. Exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. Yeah, that is an amazing thing. You know, the Lord doesn't scrimp on what he provides us. Good point. Other thoughts and questions? Alright, 45 to 52. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he sent the multitude away. And when he had sent them away, he uh, departed to the mountain to pray. Now when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. Then he saw them straining at rowing, for the wind was against them. Now about the fourth watch of the night he came to them, walking on the sea, and would have passed them by. And when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were troubled. But immediately he talked with them and said to them, Be of good cheer, and cry, do not be afraid. Then he went up into the boat to them, and the wind ceased. And they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure, and marveled. For they had not understood about the loaves, because their heart was hardened. So... Jesus sends the disciples back across the sea in the boat. Well, he does what? Pray at the mountain. Yes, Jesus does often pray. And and often at important junctures. And this is. And uh, so he, he wants to pray. So he does that. Well, by the time he gets done, it's in the wee hours of the morning, and where are the disciples? Stuck. Yeah, why are they stuck? <laughs> yeah, big storm on the sea, winds against them. They're rowing and rowing, but they can't get across the sea. It's the fourth watch of the night, so that'd mean it was like three to six o'clock in the morning already. They'd been up all night, you know, probably pretty exhausted. And um, Jesus has been up here on the mountain praying. So what does Jesus decide to do? Go for a stroll. <laughs> yeah. He decides to come uh, come over where they're at. And uh, what means does he use to do that? Walk on the water. Yeah, he just walks over there. Now, do you have a mental picture of what it had been like for Jesus to walk across that water? My mental picture used to be wrong. I know I've thought of it as a flat sea and you know, walk and everything's calm and then because when you think about walking over the waves, you think of the big waves, you like he's walking up and down the hills or they're splashing everywhere, but you don't think of him getting wet and so yeah. it's all very confusing. Exactly. I used to imagine it as walking across a still glassy sea. But that's not the way the sea is in the middle of this storm. We're dealing with waves and, and the wind and all that. 
And so this is not, to me, I, you know, it would be hard to walk on, uh, you know, calm water. But it seems even more uh, impressive to be walking on this really choppy, wavy water. I mean, because I assume he is walking up and down these, you know, hills of waves and so forth. That's really incredible. You know, that even makes it more impressive to me and probably makes it even, even a little more spooky to the disciples. Because you've not got a figure that's just coming at you, you know, and you're seeing, you're, you're seeing a head bob up and then back down and, and a head and shoulders bob up and then back down. And that would have been really uh, quite terrifying. What do they think? Yeah. You know, I mean, wow. And, and, and you can imagine at that hour of the night, probably a little tense and tired, certainly tired, and it's a ghost. You know, they're kind of, uh, you know, panicky. And uh, what does Jesus say? Take heart. Yeah. Now that is a key in this story, in my judgment. And perhaps is the biggest point of the story. If we have Jesus with us, there's no point in being afraid. Now, when Jesus wasn't there, what was happening with them? They were very troubled. Great distress, very troubled, inability to accomplish their task. When Jesus is with them, what happens? They're not afraid. They're not afraid, and the wind stops, the wind stops and they're able to make their destination. So part of the lesson is the uh, great impact of the presence of Jesus with us. Besides just the amazing event, there are, I don't know what to do with this, but there are a number of water miracles in the Bible, including several that Jesus was associated with. Uh, but this is probably in some ways as impressive as any, if you've ever uh, tried the experiment at home of well, walking across the water. So. How did the disciples feel? Astonished. Why, after all that Jesus has done, should they have been so astonished? No. They don't ever seem to get it. You know, every new miracle just amazes them again. Well, we knew he could do that and that and that, but we didn't really could do that. <laughs> and we're kind of like that. Theoretically, we believe the Lord can handle everything. When it comes to our crises, suddenly we think, oh, I didn't know he could do that too. You know, so, so it, it, they're, they're a lot like us in just being slow to recognize the extent of Jesus' power and ability. Comments and thoughts on this story? Isn't this like sort of stepping up his power? Um, I mean, he's healed folks and done other things like this, but now he's got, again, more control over the elements and so it's almost like, okay, well, we knew he was powerful, but whoa, this is a whole other level. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly different. Now, he'd calmed the storm, yeah. so that's power of the elements. And even we know from other Gospels he turned the water into wine. And, but, but, you know, he, this, is, this is different still. Uh. Did they think it was his ghost? Or just a ghost? I assumed a ghost. If they thought it was his ghost, did they think he'd passed away? Or, you know? that, that's what I was wondering. Yeah. You know, he's left them, and 
and they're, you know, hanging out in the boat, and suddenly this ghost comes to them, and it says to us, and it's probably... Thinking, I'm assuming they didn't really recognize him in the distance, in the dark, in the rain, whatever. That's my guess. So they just thought, it's a ghost! You know, I don't know, is that what you think? I, I, what would you think? I mean, you know, it's easy to laugh at that. I, I've never really seen anything I thought was a ghost, but, but man, what would you think in that situation? I mean, that would have been quite a... I don't know. I mean, it's just hard to imagine what must have gone through their head. I think you've got one imagination. <laughs> so I think yeah. You imagine well, stuff. I think things were different than you know, and you know, we don't see demon possession the way they did, and it's possible that there were other things going on then too. So it might not have been so silly. Yeah. Yeah, I assume this is not something that we're supposed to take as, well, that was really stupid on their part or whatever. I suppose that's kind of a natural reaction and sort of being presented that way. I have a question. Yes. Um, in verse 48, uh, it's 3 to 6 a.m., so it would be dark out, and he intended to pass by them, that he wasn't even going to stop. We were at a friend's house, and, and uh, we were talking about this verse in particular, and they were thinking that it could have been that he wanted to show his glory as he passed by them like God did. Um, that he wasn't really intending, his intention was not to stop and um, calm the sea then, but his intention was just to go to pass by them. Yeah, there would be some question even about the translation of that. Anybody got, what is the, anybody got the NIV or the NKJV or ESV? Everybody has a New American Standard here? Wow. I got the What's the new king? Does it have intended passing by? ESV and Okay. You know, what I've wondered about is, you know, is, is this his purpose, or is this kind of the trajectory he was on? You know, he was, he was sort of going past the boat. Not that he... I mean, Jesus knew what was going to happen, I'm assuming, so it wasn't like his, he had a settled purpose not to get in the boat. But, but instead of just walking straight to the boat to get in, he was just walking past the boat. That that's kind of what he was doing, waiting for them to, you know, do what they did. I don't know. Actually, I'll take that back. My version says he would have passed them by. Okay, yeah. That would be kind of what I'm thinking, is that he was, the, the way he was going, he was getting close to the boat, but he was not actually going toward the boat. He was going beside the boat. Maybe he was testing them, like, do you really need, need me every step of the way? Yeah, I, yeah, it could be. I mean, it's hard to... I don't know exactly how he expected them to react. I know he didn't expect them, or, or didn't think they should have been so shocked by this. But, yeah, who knows? And we know from Matthew, this is the same event where Peter actually got out of the boat and started walking to Jesus. And that was its own interesting thing. There's in that section of Matthew, there's several incidents involving Peter and some of the you know, good and bad things he did. So Yes, sir. What insight were they supposed to have gained from the incident of the lowers? I say the insight that Jesus can handle anything, he can do anything. Don't be surprised when he, you know, does something else that's humanly impossible. You know, it, again, it, to me, it's the idea, 
you know, when do we ever, um, you know, use our inductive reasoning to decide these things shouldn't surprise us anymore. They've got to be kind of normal with Jesus. It may be different, but a man like Jesus, what couldn't he do? You know, I think that's what they should have been thinking, but they they just compartmentalized. Well, he can multiply loaves and fishes, but we didn't know he, we didn't know he could walk on the water. You know, that kind of thing. Other comments? You said that he just made the credit critical points. What made this a critical moment? I thought somebody might ask that. In John, we know in John 6 that the multitude was trying to make him king by force. It was a very critical time, probably a temptation to Jesus, perhaps. And certainly a decisive time, because again from John we know that the next day he's going to deny them more food and the crowd's going to disperse and there are only going to be 12 left. (laughs) So that's what I was thinking of. Other comments and questions? Kind of a, I don't know if you can answer this, but why might Mark have left out the part about Peter walking on the water? Well, first of all, I mean, I think when you read these stories, you really need to see them not so much in terms of what they leave out, but as these are the points they're telling. I'm assuming that when we tell a story, most of the time, we don't leave things out. That's not the way we think of it. We just tell the points of the story that we think are relevant to whatever we're doing, whether we're entertaining, or whether we're explaining, or whether we're making a point, or whatever. Everybody, when they tell a story, leaves out some things in one sense. They don't, they don't mention every detail of the story. People who do that are known as boring. <laughs> you know? Uh, so, so, I assume that for Mark's purpose, you know, he's just needing to tell this part. Now, I am not so sure if I know what the overall overriding theme right here in Mark is. I don't have a good handle on that. So if we knew that, maybe we'd have a better idea as to why this part of the story suits his purpose and divert, digressing into Peter's actions doesn't. But, but I do think, I mean, a lot of times we read the Gospels and we often do what I just did a couple of times and probably shouldn't have, Uh, read them synoptically. I don't really think that's so helpful most of the time. And from our perspective, since we know the whole story from all the Gospels, we're like, well, why didn't he tell that? Why didn't he tell that? And we might even imagine, well, he just, you know, he he knew he could tell this, but he decided, well, I'm not going to tell that one. And I don't think it's that way. I'm not assuming. Now, a lot of people do. But I'm not assuming that Mark had a copy of Matthew he was looking at when he wrote this, or vice versa. Now, the, the, the vast majority of New Testament scholars go through all sorts of things in terms of the, the source criticism and trying to figure out, well, 
you know, how did this writer come up with his, and, you know, was it from Mark, or was it from Matthew, or they've got this whole big document called Q that they have simply hypothesized. There's even a concordance to Q, and no one's ever seen Q, but that's supposed to be a background document to, to some of these. What the real problem with this is, and, and the, if you ever read much in, in you know, commentaries and things like that in the Gospels, they do all this stuff. But as I understand it, I think the real motivation for it is, how do you account for such um, similar wording and phrasing and details and all of that. You know, it normally, if two people wrote accounts, they wouldn't write them so similarly. They, they, they diverge more. They'd have some contradictions and they'd have some things that they certainly didn't use the same wording. And so, from a, if you're assuming this is a human document and the wording is uncannily similar, then you've got to say, well, they, they came from some common source. You know, they read each other and they were copying each other. They had, a, you know, another background source. What's our explanation for why they were so similar? Besides, besides the fact that they're reporting on the same event. And so, you know, that might make them somewhat similar. But what's the other explanation for why they're so similar? They did have a, did have a background source. His name was God. Yes, Exactly. From my perspective, with the Holy Spirit inspiring this, that's not a problem at all. But, but so much of biblical study today assumes that God did not have his hand in writing this. And that we have to explain it strictly in human terms. And so that's why they do all this kind of stuff. Uh, but, but to me, read them independently and assume that they were not consulting the others. Now, Luke could have, although Luke's is more different than Matthew Mark, because we know he did, from Luke 1, research some source material. Uh, but, but Luke is not the one that really gives people problems. It's how Matthew Mark or something. And, uh, so, anyhow. I didn't like that. Sorry. Just as a random question. Uh, here, um, one reason he might have left the Peter incident out of here and not mentioned it is because by going down that path, it would take the focus off of Jesus, and that seems to be somewhat of a theme. I mean, it's always it's always there, and even if there's you know the side trip to see what Herod was doing with John, it comes back and plays a part while the you know talking about Peter would not necessarily have done that. Yeah, that's, a, that's an excellent point. Have you ever done that when you're telling a story? You kind of got sidetracked, you're telling some more details that kind of led you, and, and, and by the time you get done, you realize, man, I kind of I kind of lost the story because I told too much. You know, and it just kind of loses its continuity, it loses its point because you kind of got off, I, I'm, you know, I guess I'm the well, almost the oldest one. But, um, but you, know, you know how older people get with that. You know, so I can say that. Uh, you know, kind of, you, you see an older person that kind of rambles. And, and, you know, one thing just kind of leads to the next, leads to the next. And it, like, completely, and by the time you get done, it's like, what did that have to do with this? And, 
And so when you're telling a story, sticking with your main thought. Now, Matthew, in that section, really does do a lot with some failures of Peter and the disciples, and that seems to be a real concern of his through that. But that doesn't seem to be Mark's concern here. Later on in Mark, he will have a section in which he really recounts a lot of the mistakes the disciples made. But I think you're right. I think right here, it's much more focused on Jesus himself. So that's a good point. Other comments and questions? All right. Uh, How about this last little section, 53 to 56? When they had crossed over, they came to the land of at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. When they got out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him and ran that whole country and began to carry here and there on their pallets those who were sick to the place they heard he was. Wherever he entered villages or cities or countryside, they were laying the sick in the marketplaces and imploring him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak. And as many as touched it were being cured. So, he gets there. Now we're back on sort of the original side of the sea. And guess what? What happens? Isn't it amazing? Thronged again, you know, healing the sick. Uh, they're wanting to touch his cloak. Uh, and, and Jesus has amazing ability. Because it doesn't matter who touches him or what they were sick from. He's able to heal. Just, uh, you know, spectacular uh, what he's doing. And surely is great proof of who he was. And a sign as to his healing ability. He's, He's giving a physical sign that we should see as indicating his ability to heal us in invisible ways as well. Comments and questions? I had a comment about like some earlier when sure. uh, his patients would have been tested or whatever by the compassion or whatever. I was just kind of thinking about that. Like, there's a lot of times at work when my patients is tempted or uh, whatever. Um, and I guess it's that willingness to sacrifice our time or um, our effort whenever a situation arises, no matter what that situation is, um, seems to be helpful. Definitely. Yes. That's a challenge for us. Other thoughts? You have a question. Is there any way that, maybe, I'm just thinking out loud here, but um, the last verse here kind of reminds me, verse 56 kind of reminds me of 525. Sure. Is there any way that might have spread? Like, people had heard about what happened and it spread? That's possible. That also may have just become kind of a natural thing. But yeah, I think it's possible that others certainly would have known about that, and so that would have, uh, you know, added to that. The, the apostles, it was amazing some of the things that they did that this reminds you of. Do you remember any, any of the unusual ways that the apostles healed people? Shadow falling on Yes, Acts 5, 15, and 16, when Peter's shadow would fall on someone, evidently they were healed. And so they try to bring people to where his shadow would fall on them. And uh, do you remember anything else? 
Yes, exactly. In Acts 19, verse 11 and 12. God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out. So there were some unusual, I don't know what you want to say, healing methods or processes or whatever here in some of these things. And this kind of fits in that category to me. Other comments? You would think he would be really tired. And when you're really tired, it's really hard to be patient when you're pressured. Uh, he's amazing. Other thoughts? Alright, chapter 7, uh, verses 1 to 13. The Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around him when they had come from Jerusalem and had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the traditions of the elders. And when they, can, and when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. The Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? And he said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. He was also saying to them, You are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother. And he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, If a man says to his father or his mother, Whatever I have that would help you is Corbin, that is to say, given to God. You no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother, thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down, and you do many things such as that. All right. So the enemies are there. Uh, they've come from Jerusalem. You wonder if they're not trying to uh, find what dirt they can on Jesus. And what do they find? Disciples are eating with dirty hands. Yes. Now the dirty here is dirty how? Ritually dirty. Yes. Ritually unclean. Not the question isn't hygiene. You know, if you want to, you know, eat germs, okay. The question is contamination in a in a purity sense. The Jews have developed the tradition that you know you might in your daily life have some sort of con contamination from contact with Gentiles. And so they had a special ceremonial washing that they went through before they were to eat. That was part of their tradition. It was not something you find in the Old Testament, but it was a part of their religious tradition trying to make sure they maintained their purity. 
And that's what they found on Jesus and the disciples. Kind of makes you want to know whether we should laugh or cry. That all they could find. You know, he doesn't go through their traditional ceremonial washing before he eats. You know how Jesus always does these critiques of his practice? How does he always deal with those? Um, he tells them what the word says. Yes. What else? He always seems to attack yes. their thinking. Yes. And he, I think that's a key. <clears throat> Sometimes when we are criticized, we go on the defensive and we try to justify our actions. I don't really see Jesus as ever being on the defensive. He will answer the criticisms in such a way as to lay down important principles and teachings of his own and deal with fundamental problems in his enemies, in in the disciples, whoever's asking him the question. Jesus is so profound. He's so able. You know, we might think as many criticisms as he gets if he was just able to come up with some sort of an adequate answer to the accusations, that that in itself would be pretty good. You know, it's hard to do that, especially, you know, kind of on the fly. But Jesus will do it and will say things that are very, very vital teachings of his in the process. And he does that, you look at that, almost every time he's criticized. Think about some of the ones we've had already. He's criticized, uh, for eating with the publicans and sinners. And he get, lays down the principle, you know, it's not the sick that need the, uh, the, the, not the well that need the physician, but the sick. You know, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. You know, they, they ask him about fasting. And he talks about how he came with a whole new approach, not just to patch up their old garment. And, and so forth and so on. He does that, you know, it's like, he, he goes on the offensive. You know, he uses it as a springboard to actually advance his, his, his message instead of just defending himself. So he does that here. They question, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders but eat their bread with impure hands? And what does he use the occasion to deal with? Hypocrite. Hypocrisy in what sense? Well, he was sort of asking, why don't your disciples follow the word of God? Exactly! And he makes a contrast between the Word of God and their tradition. He he points out in verse 7 that they taught as their doctrines the precepts of men. Then in 8 he says, neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. In 9 you're experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. In 13, thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition which you've handed down. So he keeps contrasting their teaching, their doctrine, their tradition with God's word. And that's exactly the question. The question is not why doesn't he keep their traditions? Why don't they keep God's word? Now, how did Jesus feel about keeping human traditions? He didn't care. He didn't care. 
Now, when you when we say human traditions, the Pharisees wouldn't have thought of this as being, well, this is some human tradition we've made up. They thought of this as being God's will. They thought this was the way you had to do it. Jesus violated religious people's convictions as to right and wrong. Don't look at Jesus and think he's just one of these conservative religious people who makes sure he never rocks the boat and he never does anything sort of scandalous. To these guys, this is scandalous. This is an outrage. He's eating that bread with unwashed hands. You don't do that it, because that's an important tradition. That's something you just have to do. I mean, that's well, well, it would be it would it would it would be impure. It would be it would defile. You know, the food it would defile God. That's the way they look at this. And and so Jesus says, I want you to go back and think about where's the source of this. They didn't think about that. They didn't ask Jesus this question, thinking, well, this is just from men. And God has nothing to do with it. They assume this tradition of the elders was God's will. He says, no, wait a minute. Do you not see the difference between what God said and what man says? Should they have been able to tell the difference? Yes. How? They're Pharisees. They should know. What sh- but how could you tell? Well, whether it was written in the law or, or it was, now Rabbi so-and-so taught this and this and now I thus follow this, as opposed to where God, where Moses said this, etc. It's a cinch. That's exactly right. You know whether something's from God or man. Is it written in God's book or not? That's really a critical question because following men's traditions and not God's commands causes us to worship in vain, verse 7. It often, when we start following man's teachings, how many times does it cause us to not follow God's teachings? He points out a situation in which had this tradition that you could dedicate your possessions to God and not you know, kind of like deferred giving. You know, it didn't mean you had to use them for God. You just dedicated them to God. You could still use them for yourself, but you couldn't use them to take care of your aging parents. Because that would be robbing God of what you dedicated to Him. He said, that's your tradition. You didn't find anything about that in the law. And your tradition is causing you to violate the command to honor your parents. That's the tendency of human rules and regulations and traditions they not only are unnecessary, they'll cause us not to do what God says. I've got one for you in modern day that's a lot like this. I realize this, you know, interferes with what some people believe. But think about this one. Did the doctrine of infant baptism come from God or man? How do you know? I don't see any examples of any babies being baptized in the New Testament and 
I also know something about the history and the doctrine of the Catholic Church. Yes, but fundamentally for us, it's not in the Bible. So it didn't come from God. You know. And think about those who do baptize babies. What do they usually not do as a result of that? Submerge them fully. Yes. And baptize them as believers. As those who repented. Because after all, they've already been baptized. That's what they think. They don't need to be baptized. The Bible teaches believers' baptism. When they teach infant baptism, not only do they do something God's not commanded, but then they don't practice the baptism of those who've come to believe because they think they've already handled it. So there's a case where following men's tradition causes you to set aside God's command. That is the tendency of those things. And Jesus is very clear in making the distinction. He's going to ignore human tradition and just focus on God's command. Comments and thoughts to this point? I keep thinking there's a better example, but I got to thinking like when uh, Saul took those uh, animals and such home when he was supposed to destroy everything, and he said, well, having been sacrificed, this is a good thing. God wasn't exactly happy with it. Not at all. First Samuel 15. we got to follow it, do it God's way, not man's way. Do we, do we think in those terms? I mean, how many times do we really think, is this from God or man? Some doctrine, some practice, some thing that we think is important? Do we ever ask the question, is this really in the Bible or not? Some people might say, well, we've always done it this way. Does that really make any difference? They've been doing it that way for a long time, too. It was the tradition of the elders. <laughs> Who cares? Jesus was not worried about honoring the, you know, antiquity of the pra- antiquity, whatever that word is, of the practice, the oldness of the practice. <laughs> you know, it's just a matter of doing what God says. That's all it is. And so it doesn't make a difference how long we've done something or how special it is to us or how many people say to do it. It's just a matter of what does God's word say. That's all that we need to think about. But that is a hard thing for us to really constantly focus on because so often our tradition or our preferences or whatever leads us to actually maybe make some rules or do things in certain ways that the truth is aren't in the Bible. But that's what everybody says, that's where we've grown up, that's what what we believe. You know, one of the things we really need to focus on is constantly seeking to, to say things from the book. You know, when we answer questions, go back to passages and answer them. When we teach and preach, teach and preach what the Bible says. I was, you know, not too long ago, listening to a sermon. And the sermon wasn't bad stuff. It was pretty sensible stuff. But it was like not a single <coughs> passage. I'm not even sure there was a single passage alluded to in the whole sermon. Well, there were, 
were some pretty common sense kinds of things, some, you know, nice things to say. Some of them, some of them weren't so good, I didn't think. But the fact of the matter is, what were we doing saying at all without constantly expounding on the text of Scripture in what we say? I think there's some points that the guy made in the sermon he couldn't have found in the Bible. But when he wasn't trying to find anything in the Bible, how would he know? It was a guy who essentially is supposed to be a, a faithful preacher. But that that's a... You know, we start using human reasoning, human thoughts, human traditions. And, and what we really need to constantly do is say, is that what's written or not? All right, thoughts and comments. Yeah, Alan. I was in a Timothy study, um, for 2 Timothy 4, um, he talks about, um, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God, of Christ Jesus, and he goes on to know, and then he says in verse 2, preach the word, and then he goes on to talk about, in verse 3, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. And so, it's like constantly sticking to the word to avoid uh, that. Exactly. I think that is exactly the thing. We cannot stick too close to the Word. And when we when we stray from that, then we're in trouble. And, and, and constantly questioning and saying, is it in the Word? This is God's message. Nothing that comes from man is as good as what comes from God. It kind of reminds me of Hosea 5. Uh, talks about in verse 11 how Ephraim is oppressed and broken in judgment because he will only walk by human precept. So we see, you know, how, where human precept can take you. Why would we make laws when we're a perverted society that uh, has no basis of morality if there is no God? Absolutely. Other thoughts, comments, questions? Maybe this is really obvious, but I mean, I think. Uh, you know, we need to think this way just in everything we do. Um, you know, is this specific action an action that is good for God and that He would approve? Not that we necessarily want to do something wrong, but I mean, in other words, not quite sure how to say it, but is it something godly or just whatever? Absolutely, I need to. I think it's easy to compartmentalize our lives, and I know that in business, we have looked at worldly business models, which makes sense, we're in business, right? But they don't always conform to godly business models. And what makes sense for somebody else to do in business doesn't necessarily make sense for a Christian to do in business. And, you know, that's, that's I think, what you're trying to say in every aspect of your life. Having a godly outlook on them is going to be different it's just going to be different. We're always in everything, every part of our life, what does God want? What would please and honor God according to His Word in this situation? That's exactly what we need to do. We're His servants. And that's 24 hours a day. Other thoughts? Well, we'll pause here, but this is not the end of what Jesus is going to tell them. He's going to have a second main point about all of this and going to deal with the second aspect of this hand-washing tradition. Uh, So stay tuned, Uh, but not next week or the following. I think uh, my next time...